the night air was cold. The hour late and the gloom was overwhelming. An open fire burned in the high priest's courtyard that fateful eve, and Simon Peter took his seat among those who warmed themselves there. Who is this disciple? Who sits by the fire while his master, Jesus of Nazareth, stands trial in the palace? We know him as Simon Peter. And we know him to be a man who loves Jesus Christ. He loves his wisdom. He loves his teaching. He loves his compassion and grace. He loves Jesus' courage, his zeal for God, his utter dependence upon his Father, his holiness, his unadulterated love for others, including for Peter. But to Peter's utter horror, someone recognizes him. You are a follower of this Galilean rabbi who is on trial here tonight before the high priest. In that moment, Peter is ashamed to identify with Jesus. And he blurts out, I do not know the man. Swearing it on oath. And repeating, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. From a distance, Jesus looked into the eyes of Peter. And Peter ran out into the night and he wept bitterly. On that traumatic night, Peter learned one of the primary lessons of discipleship. As the followers of Jesus Christ, we've only got two options. We can be ashamed of Jesus or we can suffer. For him. That's what Peter learned that night. And it would be a long lesson in working out who Jesus is and what he says is out of sync with the spirit of this age, with our world's values, with its goals, and with its expectations. Our world has specific definitions of happiness and specific ways to achieve those definitions. So those who profit from the systematic promotion of those definitions and of those ways don't like it when a Messiah shows up and tells them that their system is a death trap and it must be shut down. Jesus stands in the face of this world system and says, Surrender to Me. I alone am Lord. I alone must save you. I alone am the source of your joy and your strength. The way, the truth, and the life. Everything in our fallen world hears that message and stands up to it and says, No, you are not. Whether it's subtle or blazing rebellion against God, whether subconscious or outward. Our world is saying at every turn, no, Jesus, You are not the way, the truth, and the life. If you today have genuinely trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior from sin and from divine judgment, you can be ashamed of the person of Jesus Christ and His message lining up with the world's expectations, or you can suffer with Christ as you stand and proclaim this truth. That's our options. And I think that should, indeed for every one of us who knows Christ the Savior, bring conviction, doesn't it? 
Like Peter, I too have come to trust Jesus as my Savior. Like Peter, I too love Jesus Christ as my Savior. But undoubtedly, there are moments in each of our lives where we are ashamed. We hate it, but we let the world silence us. We allow it to press us into its mold of expectations. And as people look at us, and as they look at the lost world around, too often they really don't see any distinction. We're just like they are. And in that, we are ashamed of Jesus Christ and His message. Well, there's tremendous help for us in Paul's second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We have here, if you'll make your way there, a seasoned veteran evangelist who is suffering severe persecution for Christ, writing to this trusted colleague in the faith. I mean, think of what we're hearing in this letter. We have Paul who's in a Roman prison writing to Timothy who is in the increasingly difficult place at Ephesus as doctrine, true doctrine, is under pressure there. Paul writing to Timothy, talking to him about this temptation to be ashamed of Christ as Peter was, as every genuine believer in Christ is tempted to be. Remembering from last week, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul encourages Timothy by saying, God has not given us a spirit of fear. This fear that we have is not placed there as a gift from God. It comes from some other source. We have received a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. You notice the next word in verse 8, therefore. And here is Paul's call to Timothy. Therefore, on the basis of this power that dwells within, because of this faith that dwells within, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. It is a call here not to be ashamed. Not to be ashamed of what? Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of two things. Of the testimony about our Lord. To say it more simply, don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the message that God has given us that we are proclaiming to the lost. You notice that it's the message of our Lord. This is who Jesus is, despite what the world thinks. Jesus is sovereign. And we must not be ashamed of this truth. It is the truth that saves, and it's the truth that we proclaim. Don't be ashamed of that. Secondly, don't be ashamed of Me. Don't be ashamed of Me, His prisoner. Only a person ashamed of Christ could be ashamed of someone imprisoned for Christ. Only, only a person unashamed of Christ will not be ashamed of someone imprisoned for Him. Someone rejected by this world. And you'll notice here, very subtly, Paul says, His prisoner. Refers to himself as His, as Christ's prisoner. Paul never spoke of himself as the prisoner of Rome. He was. But he didn't speak of himself that way. He was in prison because Jesus deemed it necessary for the advance of the Gospel. He is Jesus' prisoner. And I think there's a hint there to help us as we work with this battle against being ashamed of Christ. When fighting shame, perspective is everything. Imagine where Paul would be if all he ever thought of is, I'm the prisoner of Rome. 
I am subject to this power, this empire that has imprisoned me and in one sense silenced me. No, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. And that changes everything. He's in the same prison, the same circumstances, but it's the way that he thinks of it. Christ is the Lord. Christ is Lord over the Roman Empire. I'm ultimately a prisoner of Jesus. He just speaks of himself that way. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. And don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner of the Gospel. You'll notice there in the middle of verse 8, the word but. Don't be ashamed, but share in suffering. The idea is if we are not going to be ashamed of the Gospel, not ashamed of the people who are suffering for Christ, we will suffer with them. We will share in their sufferings for the Gospel by the power of God. Not by our own power. Not by a power that is innately in us, but the power that is from God. So don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, but rather choose suffering. Now at verse 9, Paul will defend this call to Timothy. And this defense reveals that victory over shame comes by understanding the wonder of the Gospel for which we suffer. It's fairly straightforward, but there's great wisdom in this. Let's think, we've got Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy's been with Paul for a long time. He's heard all of his teaching. He's received information from him, been instructed under his ministry. Yet Paul comes back to the basics of the Gospel here with Timothy. This is what we've got to understand. We've got to look at the wonder of salvation in Christ and know it. As we know it, shame will be chased away. So, having spoken of the Gospel by the power of God, that is, he will suffer by the power of God for the Gospel, verse 9, this Gospel of God who saved us. That is, He rescued us from God's judgment against our sins. And secondly, He called us to a holy calling. He called us out of the world to live as a holy, morally distinct body. Now, what was God's motivation? Find it there in verse 9. Not because of our works. This is what God has done to save us, to call us out of this world to be a distinctive people. He did not do this because of the works that we have done. We did not earn this salvation and calling from God. It is a gift of His grace. This is Gospel basics, isn't it? But we rejoice in it. We're gathered here as a church today because of this truth. It is by the mercy of God that we are saved, not according to works. It is by faith that we have been saved, not according to works, so that no one can boast, Paul writes to the Ephesians. I wonder if I speak to anyone here. Are you here this morning as one who thinks you can perform good deeds and religious rituals in order to gain God's approval? If the truth were told, you're here today because you believe you need to do this to please God. You have to earn your salvation in some way. Here is a basic truth of Scripture. That's not true. That's not right. What does it say here? Not because of our works. If we are not saved by works then, and that's what human religion typically indicates, it's by what we do that we gain the pleasure of the divine realm. If, it's not, if that's not the way that it is, then how are we saved? Verse 9, 
not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Beautiful words. We've got to wade through them for just a bit. It's not because of works, verse 9, but because of His own purpose and grace. What was God's motivation? Answer it from this text. Not because of works. So if we're not saved by works, and we rejoice in that, why then are we saved? The answer that we fill in is vital. Am I saved because I decided to trust Christ as Savior? As much as I did. Are you saved because God foresaw before creation that you would place your trust in Him as Savior? As much as He did. What does the Bible say? If you are genuinely saved, you have been born again because of His purpose and grace. That's the answer that Scripture supplies to those questions. This is where the emphasis consistently falls in the Bible. It is God's resolve, God's purpose and will that is primary. We do trust Christ. We do place our faith in Him. We do, in some sense, choose Christ. But we do so as those who have been awoken from the dead. As Ephesians 1.4 reveals, this is not saying... The verse does not teach that we were saved before we existed, which is really ultimately impossible. Or even that we were saved when we were conceived in our mother's womb. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it means by the fact that it's His purpose and grace before time began. When does this all take place? As we read there, it is before the ages began. So what is it saying? It is saying that He elected us before time to save us in time. This, by the way, is a truth of which many Christians are ashamed. Well, there's no need to be ashamed. There's no virtue in being ashamed. We were dead in sin and God made us alive in Christ. And we were not an afterthought. He did not figure this out on the way, but He had this design from eternity past. We'll never get our mind around that entirely, but what we need to do is yield to the teaching of Scripture. When that question is asked, why have I been saved? What is the motivation behind it? It always comes back to the purpose and the grace of God. And a grace which He did not figure out somewhere along the line because we were acting well. It is a purpose, a resolve in the heart and mind of God from before time began. I can't entirely explain it. But it is what the Bible explains. So this purpose and grace of God was given to us before time began. And verse 10 is not, has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Our salvation, which God designed from eternity past, was actualized historically when Jesus Christ took on flesh. If you want to see salvation, you look at Jesus. He is the manifestation, the actualization historically of all that God had designed from eternity past. The good news is that by Jesus' death and resurrection physically, 
He secured our salvation, defeating death for us and giving us eternal life. For this good news, for this gospel now that Paul has been bringing Timothy to consider, for this good news, verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Now think about what Paul's saying here. His suffering was a consequence of proclaiming and defending what God had done and was doing to save souls. That's the point of his message here. That's the point of his ministry here. As a preacher, a proclaimer, as an apostle, one sent by Christ, as a teacher, one who continued to indoctrinate others in the implications of the Gospel and the outworking of God's truth. For this, Paul is suffering. In other words, he was serving none other than the King of the universe. And Christian, hear this. So are we when we proclaim the Gospel faithfully. We are carrying out the purposes of Christ. And we are, we must not forget, proclaiming truth for one who was crucified. We should not expect necessarily a welcome response from everyone. Another key to overcoming shame then is to see the Gospel in all its power and its wonder. Perspective is crucial and seeing the wonder of the Gospel is also crucial. And this is where Peter failed. On one level, he did not fully perceive the Gospel because Christ had not yet died and risen. But he had the Old Testament Scriptures and he had received teaching from Jesus Christ. He had many pieces there, but he lost sight of this. He lost sight of this wonder. He fixed his eyes on this world and its expectations and he lost sight of Jesus. What's going on in Peter's heart as he's sitting around that fire? As he's interacting with those in that courtyard? It's about the expectations of those that are surrounding him. Jesus is on trial. He's been arrested. Peter knows the same can happen to him and he knows the expectations of those around him. It's not to identify with Jesus. In that moment, he loses sight of his salvation. He loses sight of who God is. Paul, writing to Timothy in prison, says, don't fix your eyes on the world. I'm suffering as I do for this glorious message of Christ. Let's fix our eyes on the wonder of our salvation. You know, Eden Baptist, this is one of the benefits of feeding routinely on God's Word as we come to understand God's saving purposes in Christ more and more. We come to honor it more and more. And we come to realize what Christ is doing. And so our perspective is set not by the expectations of this world, but by the eternal purposes of God. That's a real life reorientation. How we see life how we perceive those around us. So having returned to the theme of his suffering for the Gospel, Paul now adds another antidote to being ashamed of Christ. It it depends on our perspective. It depends on our seeing the glory of the Gospel. It depends then, thirdly, upon seeing the examples of others' faithfulness. I think that comes out here, if we tease it out for just a bit, beginning at verse Uh, 12, this is why I'm suffering as I do, 
but I am not ashamed. He gives his own example. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed. Follow me. Watch me in this. I'm not ashamed. Now in verse 12, he says that he is convinced that God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see a marginal note which says uh, the opposite, what I have entrusted to Him. And you say, how is that possible? Well, as we look at the Greek text, it's impossible to know which of the two Paul meant. We're going to have to work on context. Paul has entrusted to God his life, or God has entrusted to Paul the Gospel. Well, pick between those two. Are they going to take you in a bad direction? I mean, obviously both are true. So though we don't ultimately know which one he means here, we know they're both true. In fact, we're a bit schizophrenic as a church here today. We just sang the song, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have entrusted to Him until that day. Here in the ESV, we have exactly the opposite, what He has entrusted to me. Well, again, we're not we're going to be set wrong by either one. They're both true. But whichever of these two meanings is the best, it's clear that Paul is wholly trusting God, not himself. And that's the whole point. Even if it is what God has entrusted to him, the entrustment of the gospel, it's God, Paul is depending on God to fulfill that trust. Now, what, what does that mean exactly? In the ancient world, you didn't just run off on vacation and keep everything locked up at home. There were very few possessions by comparison with our culture. And you would take your most prized possessions, which were often small, so that you could control them easily, and you would put those possessions in trust with someone else. You would make a deposit with them, and you would give it to somebody you really, really trusted. You go on your long journey and you come back and you go to the person with whom you've deposited that trust and say, may I please have it back. And it was a sign of confidence. A sign of loyalty. Confidence to give it and loyalty to give it back to the person that had placed it there. So whatever the trust is precisely here, there is a confidence in God that He will carry through and carry us through to the end. And so Paul says in verse 13, be, I have been a pattern of sound words. I don't think he's just saying, I've, I've talked in a certain way. But the sound words, or the healthy words, is healthy doctrine. You know, Timothy, I've not adjusted my message in order to escape persecution. Some people have received the Word of Christ. And they have received us. Others have rejected us. We didn't change the message. Though he adapted the message to his audience, he never changed the truth of it. He never changed its fundamental meaning. So I have been a pattern to you of healthy doctrine. I've always spoken the truth. Follow my pattern. Timothy is to honor the truth of God with faith and love in union with Christ. That is, he's not going to do this in his own strength and power, but in the power of depending upon the Lord and in the love of Christ, Timothy is to be faithful to the same body of truth. That is, the truth then is seen. 
as a deposit, as a trust. We don't reinvent it. We don't rewrite it. We hold it in trust. That perhaps is the best understanding within the context, though again, not a problem at all if Paul is saying, I've entrusted my life to Christ. Either way, our trust and our confidence is in Him and we proclaim this truth. But I have been an example of sound words. Paul concludes this exhortation then in verse 14, drawing further attention to the power that will enable Timothy to be faithful. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Which might indicate that earlier the deposit was what God had put in the trust of Paul. But again, at either rate, we have it very clearly here. He's speaking about guarding the good deposit entrusted to you. That is, this beautiful, wonderful Gospel designed from eternity past in the mind of God according to His purposes and resolve has been placed in the hands of Timothy. Just a man. And a man under pressure. And so it has been placed in our care, entrusted to us. Paul faithfully guarded that truth. Timothy was to do the same. He was to see the tremendous trust that had been deposited with him in the Gospel. And he could always trust God with his life. He had it in him to be faithful to this deposit. Not because of what was innately in him, but remember chapter 1, verse 5, because of the faith that dwelt in him. Verse four, uh, verse 6, rather, because of the spiritual gift that dwelt in him. And now verse 14, because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within him. Because of this supply of power from God, we can hold the Gospel faithfully and not be ashamed and not compromise the truth so that we line up with the expectations of the world. This is exactly what some do. There is a Jesus designed by liberal theologians. And by liberal theologians, I just mean they are not concerned about the trust that has been placed in them by God to preserve the Gospel. They are interested in conforming with the expectations of the world around. There's even a theology that works that way purposefully and knowingly, saying that God is always changing, conforming to the world that's around Him. And so they design a Jesus that really nobody has much problem with. The Jesus who's always giving people things and always saying nice things and is always gracious and kind and good and gentle. Who's going to really have a problem with such a person? The problem is it's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. It's a Jesus of someone's imagination. I have been an example of sound, healthy teaching and I'm suffering for it. Don't be ashamed of me, but follow me. That's the difference. Don't run from my example. Emulate my example. When we are faithful to God's Word in this world, this world is going to kick back really hard. Now, you have my example. Follow my example. Here now is an example not to follow. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't name our children after these two men for two reasons. They're a bad example. They have deserted 
the prisoner of Christ. Why? Because they've deserted Christ. They have no loyalty to Jesus. Their loyalty at least is challenged. And so they don't want to identify with this prisoner who is a state criminal. You identify with him, you could have some problems. And they've turned away from him. Now it says all who are in Asia. Don't think Asia, China, Japan. Think Asia, Turkey. This is Asia, the province, the Roman province. What is at the heart of the Roman province of Asia? It's the city of Ephesus. It is the city, and this is heart-wrenching. This is the city, Ephesus, centered in Asia, this province, where Paul spent most of his missionary endeavors. This is the place where he preached the Word of God for three years. And that Word went out on the roads, the Roman roads, out into the various villages and towns and cities that surrounded Ephesus throughout this region of Asia. There might be nowhere where Paul's ministry was more effective than here at Ephesus. And he says of this region, everyone has deserted me. Now I think we have to be careful here. He's speaking with great discouragement. He's speaking, I think, in hyperbole. We know that not everyone has literally abandoned him because he's writing to Timothy who is undoubtedly in Asia. And he's going to give the example of Onesiphorus, a man from Asia who's not abandoned him. He's done everything but abandoned him. But apparently what Paul means is something that Timothy would understand. And as he writes it, it was the people that Paul was depending on, those people deserted him. You know, when you were in a Roman prison, you didn't just live on the house like we do in our culture. Someone had to feed you. It wasn't the prison guards. You had to have friends on the outside who would bring your food in. You would have to have friends on the outside who would see to your needs. They would care for you. And the soldiers could make that fairly rough, particularly for a prisoner they didn't like or that was a particular enemy of Rome. It wasn't an easy or safe endeavor. But you had to come in and care for such a person. Everybody that Paul was depending on from Asia that could supply his needs and help him deserted him. He was all alone. And these were the people from Asia. It's a discouraging note. They were ashamed of Paul because they were ashamed of Christ. So when the expectations of the world put pressure on them, they crumbled. Timothy knows exactly what Paul means. Particularly these two Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, he gives an example of one who did not abandon him. May the Lord, verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Literally, chain. The one chain to his wrist. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let me jump off the track here for just a moment. I think it may be helpful to us. But you probably know of some Christians who pray for the dead. This passage is why. Their assumption is that Onesiphorus was dead, which is why Paul is saying, may God grant 
mercy to him on that day and may he bless his household. He's not saying may God bless Onesiphorus because Onesiphorus is dead. Well, first of all, we don't know. Secondly, the argument for praying for the dead doesn't come from here, but more from the book of 2 Maccabees. But you've probably heard of some people who do this. And we don't think of this in our context. I'm reminded in high school I had an unbelieving friend that I brought to a church. and In our church's context, someone had died. And so the request was offered, let's pray. This person has died. Let's offer prayers in behalf of this family. And it came around to this friend. I don't know how we got in this situation, but he prayed and he prayed for the dead person. Well, that woke us all up. I mean, we don't even think of that. We know when you when somebody's died, you pray for their family, you pray for the gospel's progress and things like that. You don't pray for the dead person. But there's a lot of people that's just very natural. I prayed at the wedding of a friend and was asked before, in fact instructed before by the deacon performing the ceremony, that I should pray for some people that had died in the community in a car accident. I needed to pray for those dead people at this wedding, which I did not do, and it was very troubling to some. Why do people pray for the dead? They believe that the soul of the departed enter purgatory where they are purified by suffering which which prepares them ultimately to enter into heaven with God. So, prayers and sacrifices, particularly from this reference in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, prayers and sacrifices can be offered to mitigate the degree of suffering and to lessen the length of time that the dead must spend in purgatory. We can... I guess rejoice in the fact that there's people like this who at least believe there's an afterlife. And they realize that there has to be payment for sin. The problem is is that they're miserably ignorant of what the Bible says. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the truth. To the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. You would think the man had a lot of sin to burn off in purgatory if that's where he was headed. He's dying as a criminal. No, you'll be with me today in paradise. It's a lack of understanding of the Bible. And the fact that there's a historical reference to people praying for the dead in 2 Maccabees, and that this is a prayer for the dead here is scant evidence for such a practice. But really what's behind it is a misunderstanding that Jesus Christ has fully paid the penalty of sins once and for all. We don't need. I mean, what would you do as a family if you believed that your gifts to the church and the celebration of the Mass was going to decrease the pain of your suffering family member and was going to lessen the time that they were in purgatory? Of course you would pour out money and time and attention. But all of it is a sad, sad evidence of a lack of understanding that salvation is by grace alone. It is by the work that Christ has fully fulfilled. Back to Onesiphorus, we find him looking hard for Paul. So we'll set aside prayers for the dead. I don't think that's what's taught here, but what is taught here is that Onesiphorus was searching for Paul in Rome. They didn't tell you where these prisoners were. You had to go ask. You had to go through the streets of Rome and find out which prison this man was in. 
He had to describe who he was and give his name and identify with him. And people could make that very difficult for you. And it appears by the text that he looked over and over again until he found him. He searched for me earnestly. You see, again, something radically has changed from Acts 28 where Paul was at house arrest and people were coming and going and he was teaching and everybody knew where he was. No one can find him now. He's been abandoned by those who could help him. But Onesiphorus is a man who wasn't ashamed. And so he searched hard and he found me. Using a play on words, Onesiphorus had to look hard to find Paul in Rome. And Paul hopes now that Onesiphorus will find mercy with God. His household, that is his extended family, is involved in that prayer for mercy. I don't think Paul is so much praying for this man as he is pouring out his heart of thanksgiving and praying that God will reward this one who has visited him in prison. So the key to not being ashamed by Christ, we pick up from the conversation between these men, the writing of Paul to Timothy. It is our perspective, an eternal perspective, that we belong to Christ in His eternal plan. It is the wonder of the Gospel to be saturated in that wonder. It is focusing on those who have stood the test. It's about the way we think and how we perceive our world. On that matter of those who have stood the test of faith, as Paul gives his example here, and Onesiphorus is left as an example, and Timothy is left as an example for us. I found great help, and I've shared this illustration before, but for those that haven't heard it, and I find such strength in it, is the account of the early church father, Polycarp, in the church of Smyrna, was asked by the church at Philomelium to send an account of Polycarp's death. He was martyred for Christ. And so we can't know all of the details and the facts here and support them the way we would support facts today. But this is a church sending on a report to another church about a man they both knew. And they wrote this account that there was this chief of police who ironically was named Herod who demanded that Polycarp would call Caesar Lord and burn incense to the emperor. It was a pagan festival and the pagans had an expectation about everybody at this festival and Polycarp was not fulfilling his responsibility. And so Polycarp was ultimately hauled into the arena where he received a final appeal, swear by the fortune of Caesar, And the proconsul, the official then insisted and said to him, take the oath and I will set you free. Revile Christ. This is what Polycarp is reported to have said. For six and eighty years I have been serving Him and He has done me no wrong. How then dare I blaspheme my King who has saved me? You see where His focus is. This is the One who saved me. How do I blaspheme my King? He's Lord, not you. And He has saved me from eternity past and has never done me wrong. He got a little bit testy. As he said, if you flatter yourself that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar as you suggest and if you pretend not to know me, let me tell you frankly, I am a Christian. 
And if you wish to learn the teaching of Christianity, fix a day and let me explain. Now notice here the eternal focus. The fire which you threaten is one that burns for a little while and after a short time goes out. You evidently do not know the fire of the judgment to come and the eternal punishment which awaits the wicked. But why do you delay? Go ahead and do what you want. We have two options. Polycarp had two options and Timothy had two options and Paul had two options and you and I have two options. We can be ashamed of Christ or we can suffer for Him. We need to look to the example of those who have gone before that have stood the test and be armed with their example with that historical background. Seeking the wonder of the Gospel all along. Turning our perspective to an eternal focus. Now on that point, let me just add this. In the United States, we face milder forms of persecution. And many would say we're not persecuted. Let's remember that Jesus' definition of persecution is not dying in prison. Remember what He said in Matthew chapter 5, two disciples, most of whom would die. He said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. He includes there those who ridicule. Those who despise. Persecution is not only dying for Christ. It's being set outside the world system. And that system letting you know you're outside. And it's not only individual. It's also corporate. Do you realize, Christian, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, you are suffering for the name of Christ right now. Now, I don't want to minimize where we are ashamed and don't suffer as we should. And we don't want to minimize those who are suffering in prison, but we are suffering for Christ. We inhabit a culture in which a media loves the liberal Jesus, but despises the Christ of the Bible. And they have no problem ridiculing and mocking the faith in Christ that we have and hold dear. What happens in our culture when someone speaks out against another religion other than Christianity? There is all kinds of upheaval. There are calls for prosecution, if not actual prosecution. But day in and day out, in the local newspaper, on the news, on the TV, on the internet, we will hear ridicule of the truth of Christ day after day after day, and no one seems to care. That is because Satan knows who the true Christ is. He knows who the true followers of Christ are. And he is saying in this world, you're on the outside. So we only have one option. We can only be popular in one place, not two. Heaven or earth. We have one option. To be ridiculed or to suffer or to be ashamed of Christ. 
Our perspective needs to be set on eternity, not on the praise of this world. One day, this vile world will be blown away by the glories of Christ. On that day, we will never regret having stood for Christ. Peter regretted the time that he was ashamed and denied Christ. But we know as Peter's perspective was changed, he came to that place where he himself died. No longer ashamed of Jesus. Willing to suffer. I've read it to you before, but excellent quotation by Dennis Johnson who says, to the people who are alive to the hope of God's kingdom, the realistic expectation of suffering in the footsteps of the king is not, in the final analysis, discouraging. It's to be expected. The apostolic call, he writes, to endure hardship is a call to embrace hope. The hope of the kingdom of God. It is people who have lost sight of this eternal hope who will pay any price to shun suffering. We lose perspective of what is real. We lose perspective of the eternal realm. And we say, I'm going to line up with the expectations of those who are around me here. Forgetting that one day Christ will return, will stand as judge, and will blow away this world system with His glory. So the answer is to see this reality, to live by faith in the reigning Christ and in the confidence of His conquest, to serve the King who reigns above all earthly powers and will never leave us or forsake us. Do you remember this word? How alarming it is. How concerning it is on one level. How motivating it should be when Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. I didn't write that. Jesus said it. What else can there be? We spend our lives ashamed of Jesus Christ. What else can He do but be ashamed of us? Being received by Jesus that way will be infinitely worse than all the suffering that Peter faced when he denied Christ. Do not go into eternity that way. Ashamed of Christ. You will meet Him. I will meet Him as judge and as Lord. We can be ashamed or we can suffer. We can't do both. We can't be ashamed of Christ and escape suffering. If you do not know Christ as Savior, you will stand before Him. And I would encourage you, don't stand before Him in an unforgiven state. Trust in Christ. Death and resurrection as rescue from your sin. And for those of us who have trusted that message, may we not go into eternity with shame on our record, but with confidence and hope in this God of grace. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we acknowledge that we struggle with shame. We're so easily pushed into this world's mold How many people around us say that we are genuinely different? That we've been genuinely rescued? We need Your help and Your strength. As a church, we do not want to be a church that's ashamed of following You. 
We want to live our faith out in front of this neighborhood, this city, of this region, of our neighborhoods in which we live. I pray that You'll aid us to this end. For anyone that doesn't understand these things, I pray, dear God, that they would not suffer the shame of having to stand unforgiven before Jesus. I pray that You'll supply them with this grace and mercy, that they'll seek someone out before they leave today and settle this matter and know that they can give their lives wholeheartedly to You and that You have taken their sin. We pray to this end for forgiveness. And for us, we pray for forgiveness. Like Peter, we need to be restored time and again as we dishonor Christ by being ashamed of Him. Forgive us for this insanity. But open our eyes of faith to see eternity. Not to live as those who argue with unbelievers, but as those who see the eternal reward and know that Christ is coming King. Help us to this end as a church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.